Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Anda Gunska, founder and CEO of Notch. Anda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Eric. So, Anda, you started Notch, what, four years ago, five years ago? Yeah, you know, there's been a couple of iterations of it, so it really depends which one you're referring to. I guess most companies have a story like this where, you know, it starts off being one thing and then it kind of ends up being a very different thing. So I would say the first notch that we started was about five years ago and the second notch that we started, which is really the one we've ended up ramping up and raising money for, we started three years ago when we also moved the company from Silicon Valley to New York. Awesome. So why don't you talk about what notch is today and then give it traces the history in terms of what it what it started and, and how it evolved over time. Yeah. So actually, you know, what's funny is I realized this recently that when we first started Notch, we were talking a lot about figuring out how people feel in real time about something. And I guess our inspiration was the emergence and very fast adoption of all these massive consumer platforms like Snapchat and Instagram, etc. So we thought, you know, that must be the way in which we should figure out how to you know, ask people for their opinion and empower them to share their opinions with each other. My co-founder, Steph, was very focused on the kind of the product design consumer side. And she was a really kind of brilliant and is a brilliant engineer and kind of has a great eye for design on that side. And I was always more of, I guess, split between being the business person and the data nerd. And so I always wanted to get the data out of the product and to figure out what we could imply about humanity as a whole or how we could use that data to kind of power the internet and figure out how to make personalization based on both what people feel and what they say about themselves as well as their behavior. You know, what ended up happening was we realized that not all consumer products are Snapchat and Instagram, which was a big shock. And that spite of that, we had built something really cool. We had built a really beautiful, organic, seamless looking product that specialized in collecting declared data, so feedback from people. And we decided to start just testing out to see how we would work around content, just kind of putting it online in places where people already go to consume content about everything from politics to brands to uh, pop stars, etc. And we realized that we were getting extremely high engagement. And more than that, we were capturing a really important data set for the content creators who were hosting that content and creating that content. And so that was really the beginning of the second phase of the company and why we decided to move the company from Silicon Valley to New York, because we realized that we would have to be working in kind of this marketing media world to empower content creators and content owners to understand their audiences better. And I guess the rest is history, but... We ended up building a lot of other stuff on top of that small little kind of feedback platform we had initially came up with together. And now it's a full-blown analytics slash data company that's serving the largest brands in the world. Let's paint a picture of, of, of what it was like or what it's like today. So was it like, I'm a blogger, or I'm a podcaster, or I'm a content creator, and, and you, you know, putting out real-time surveys about how people are feeling, sort of ingesting my content, or what would it look like? No, so actually, you know, it's interesting. It's a little bit more focused on the Fortune 1000s. We hope to kind of bring it to everyone one day, hopefully next year. The story is 
all of these massive brands are recognizing that content is a much more organic way to connect with their audiences. So previously, whether it was TV ads or whether it was banner ads, you know, outdoor banner ads, or whether it was the banner ads that we desperately try to block with our ad blockers, all of that type of advertising has you know, largely been proven to be ineffective. You know, the click-through rates are some crazy small number, like 0.01%. And so content has become this really interesting value exchange between a brand and its audience. So for example, Colgate, which is, you know, Colgate is toothpaste and a bunch of other things, but we don't really think about the brand. The way that they've created a name for themselves is by putting together an oral health center. They have thousands and thousands of content pieces and they're really, really great at SEO. So when you look up, you know, how do I get rid of, I don't know, mouth sores or bad breath or whatever, maybe this is not the best example. I could have picked a sexier one, but anyways, if you're Googling something like that, you're then driven to Colgate's oral health center. And so, you know, they're essentially helping you solve a problem in your life while also putting the brand in front of you. So what we do now is we actually embed on all of Colgate's oral health care center and helping them understand not only the feedback of the person after they've consumed the content on whether or not it was helpful or, you know, whatever else the question that Colgate cares about is, but also understanding the behavior of that person and who that person is and also where they came from and so on and so forth so that we can paint a truly holistic picture of that audience. And then we can start thinking about how do we segment that intelligence that comes from all these different data sets and data points about this audience so that we can make better content as a brand. And so what are some examples or use cases of like scenarios in which Colgate is using Notch? Like user reads X con, like what, what are you tracking? You, you mentioned you know, where they're coming from, but is it how they're feeling? And, and are you tracking yeah. based on like surveys or how are you getting this information? Yeah. So it's essentially a combination between the two. What's really interesting is that for some reason, there's always been a wall between kind of the research side of things and the analytics side of things. And about three years ago, when we moved to New York, I I noticed that even internally at Rams, there were research teams and analytics teams. And I just said, we need to remove this because honestly, a human being is defined by both what they say about themselves and what their behavior says about them. So every data product should also try to capture all those data points as well. And so what we do is we essentially capture declared data through our feedback platform, and we capture everything else that Google analytics captures about you and or any other analytics platform and we also track conversion to a significant event so we're trying to bring all these data signals together to essentially say here's kind of the funnel of conversion people went from like positive feelings to a lot of engagement to the ultimate conversion here's kind of the content journey or the different content pieces that led them there and let's see what we can learn from this so we can optimize the way we think about what content we create and also how that content gets distributed across different channels and different audiences and so on and Kogi is just one of the examples but there's a ton of examples we work with almost every big financial brand in the US we work with a lot of auto brands all almost all the big telco brands, um, a lot of the tech brands actually in, back in San Francisco. And the question is always the same. It's how do we know what role content plays in taking people through this marketing funnel and how can we be better content marketers, just be more relevant to our audience? And what are people using now for that? Is, is that like as a HubSpot? Or like, what, what, what else do people use? Good question. I think the world is weirdly bifurcated into two camps. There's the 
paid camp and the owned camp. And so the example that I just gave you around Colgate is about owned and operated. And what that means is it's essentially a content hub that lives on the owned and operated properties of Colgate. So when you look at the competitor set on that front, you don't have much. I mean, it's really just Google Analytics and Adobe Analytics. And those tend to be website traffic products rather than content analytics and ROI products. And then you kind of move on the paid side. So what that means is when Colgate decides to do a partnership with BuzzFeed to create content or with PopSugar. And on that front, there's not a lot of competition because we function as an independent auditor and data collector for the brand. And most data companies actually sell to publishers rather than brands. And then when you think about a brand that's using us across paid and owned, like JP Morgan Chase, and essentially trying to compare the impact and the ROI between the two, there is no other competitor. And you know, it's hard to believe. And I've kind of gone through, again, as I said, drawing all these matrices, but there's just, just these really traditional walls that we've been able to break between the first one was between research and analytics. And the second one was between this kind of paid and owned worlds. Talk more about I guess, the, the, how, you, how you break through between a paid and owned and what, what changed in order for, for that to happen or what change needs to happen in order for that to happen even more. Another great question. Actually, what the, one of the biggest changes that I think has been talked about quite a lot in New York, I don't know about Silicon Valley, is that a lot of the budgets for buying software have moved kind of away from the traditional CIO, CTO, and into the hands of the CMO. And especially as a lot of these big software companies, Oracle, Salesforce, Adobe, etc., have been investing a lot of money in building their marketing clouds. So what ended up happening was on the owned and operated side, the decision to buy software for analytics usually sat within the IT team. So both Adobe Analytics and Google Analytics are products that are bought mainly by IT teams. And as such, their entire architecture as products, the workflow that they lend themselves to are very IT team focused. You know, you have to write a ticket, you have to get a data dump, you then have to plug it into something else, you have to calibrate your dashboards. It's a, it's a pretty intense system. And when it comes to marketers, you know, marketers typically have creative backgrounds. And as such, they're not necessarily going to know exactly how to do this. And by the time they figure it out, the insight is probably obsolete because in today's world, you know, real time is too late. So the wall between paid and known has been there because marketers didn't traditionally have access to the owned and operated side. It was totally on the IT team and they were just in charge of the paid side. What's happened is essentially brands have said, hey, uh, you know, as it turns out, when consumers interact with us, they don't have this wall in their head between paid and owned. Whether you're a person interacting with a Colgate brand on their oral healthcare center, which is the owned and operated, or you're interacting with them on BuzzFeed, in your head, it's still Colgate. The experience should be relatively coordinated. And so marketers have started taking over these owned and operated content hubs. And I don't see a lot of data companies catching up. So we kind of rushed into that space. And that's going to be one of our biggest focuses for this year. Awesome. Can you talk a bit more about the transition between a Silicon Valley company and a New York company and probably, you know, between a, a, you know, B2C company and a B2B company or enterprise company? What what sort of is non-obvious that that you had to learn or or change about the business and your approach and how you found sort of the right customer segment, et cetera? Yeah, I think it depends what type of entrepreneur you are. I have always really enjoyed thinking through strategy and essentially go to market strategy and how you can position yourself against competitors, how you can build around them, how you conquer customers. 
And for me, I think because of that reason, B2B has just been such a great fit because I'm able to kind of sit down with our customers and ask them for feedback. I'm able to deeply understand them both as humans and as professionals and know what types of products we need to build to address their needs. And I think me and and Aaron, who uh, you know I call my co-founder now because he's been really kind of my co-founder in the second stage of the company, I think both of us are just really tuned into listening to our customers in a very particular way and trying to, to be empathetic towards what their actual issue is. Whereas I feel like the majority of the data companies out there you know, it doesn't matter what the customer says. They'll just try to shove a dashboard or a table of data down your throat. And I think we've been pretty good at understanding that this segment of customers is kind of a new type of customer. And what they want is a kind of a predictive insight as opposed to just a lot of data. And so that's been cool for us to be able to do. For me, B2C was a little bit like a crapshoot, I guess. Like you would just take something and just keep like throwing it at the wall and hoping something sticks. And I'm sure that there's a ton of people out there who are specialists at that. But, you know, the majority of the time you have to have a little bit of luck in having something truly take off. So, you know, I think when it comes to companies, the the less you can depend on luck, the more likely you are to succeed. And then in terms of the transition from Silicon Valley to New York, I don't know if I fully transitioned because I'm back in Silicon Valley all the time. And even before I left, I was in New York all the time. So I'm very blessed to live this bi-coastal life. But the differences, I think, are just being closer to our customers. It feels like we're in less of a bubble here. And we have access to, to kind of the people that we're, we work for, in a way, and we bring them into the office. And the engineering team is just really kind of attuned to what the actual issues are. Whereas when, I, when we were in Silicon Valley, I feel like we were in a bit of a of an echo chamber of buzzwords and you know marketers also love to use buzzwords and everyone talks about blockchain and how we're going to use blockchain to transparently track programmatic advertising but if you are not in new york and you're not plugged into the ecosystem here you will never know that actually that's really not happening at scale and potentially will never happen so you know maybe if we were in silicon valley we would be kind of like hustling away trying to build our blockchain solution but because we're here we are just really kind of tuned into what the actual needs are and i love that yeah when you hear blockchain and advertising do you just sort of eye roll like (laughs) (laughs) i do and i'm sure that a lot of people feel very strongly about this and you know i've investigated and looked at every single facet of this of this potential application of blockchain and i i roll because not because i don't think it's a solution i just think it's an overly complicated solution for a very complex problem and there's other solutions that deal a lot more with changing human incentives which i think is a little bit easier to do rather than depending on a technology which i would argue has not proven to be that secure to begin with what problem is it trying to solve within sort of advertising, is it transparency? Is it data integrity? Is it, what is it, what is it, what are better solutions? I think the reason why a lot of marketers got excited about blockchain is because of the promise of transparency. Because when the articles around blockchain came out, everyone was just saying, oh, it's going to bring just complete transparency. No, it's going to be able to lie. It's going to be great. And I think, you know, with new technologies, especially, you know, we're talking relatively complicated technologies to explain to someone who's never had to think about technology, really. 
people just tend to take a word and then affiliate it with another word and then kind of have those two things permanently be married in conversation. So I think there's a lot of hype and I don't think there's a true understanding of what the technology can do. Like, for example, there's two concepts, right? There's the concept of the ledger, which in theory cannot be changed. And I think that's been proven to be wrong, especially with some of the recent hacks on Ethereum. And two, I think the the other aspect is that while you cannot change the ledger in theory, once the data has been collected, you can still influence what gets on the ledger. And so the human incentives could still be flawed and could still lead to a non-transparent ecosystem, even if you are, in theory, not allowing the data to be changed once it is collected. And so I think those kind of two insights aren't necessarily as deeply understood as they probably should be by marketers or maybe by others as well. And whenever it comes up in conversation, I try to bring that awareness. But again, to be honest, CMOs and marketing teams in general, they struggle with much more fundamental, like, is this working type of questions. And so I think blockchain is just like really good material to talk about on a panel at CES. Shots <laughs> uh, fired. So transparency is, is, is something that you hold dear uh, as a company and you personally, for people who are unfamiliar with the space, can you, can you sort of unpack what you mean when you say you're you're really focused on transparency as a company and what problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, sure. So look, kind of going back to what I was saying before, at the end of the day, the human incentives behind the marketing ecosystem have been flawed for quite some time. And there's been a lot of reporting around it over the last few years. In particular, there's this big report that the ANA, which is the Association of National Advertisers, is kind of the largest body of advertisers. They came out with a report in which they were talking about all the different transparency issues in the advertising ecosystem, including you know behaviors from agencies who were working with vendors like Not or other vendors and saying, hey, like if you pay me this much money, I'll introduce you to the customer. There were all these these weird different behaviors. And what ended up happening is over the last two years, that black box has really been opened. And when we moved to New York, this was one of the biggest benefits of, I guess, being from Silicon Valley is when you're in Silicon Valley, you sort of assume that data information and data flow is perfect. And we moved here and we started working with a bunch of media companies measuring content campaigns on behalf or for brands rather. And we realized that essentially all the reporting is allowed to be done by the actual distribution channel, which means the media company or Facebook or Snapchat. So essentially going back to, let's see, I don't want to keep using Colgate, but let's say, you know, Kelvin Klein is doing content or L'Oreal is doing content with Facebook and BuzzFeed and Twitter and, you know, Pop Sugar. When, when it comes to reporting, every single one of these distribution channels is allowed to grade their own homework. So they collect the data themselves, they package it in a way that works for them, and they get to send it back on their timeline in their format, which to me was completely crazy. So I was like, how are you guys able to make sure that all this data that's coming back is true data? And also, wait, you don't actually have a real-time way to audit if you're hitting the audience that was promised to you or you're getting the results that were promised to you. It just, it felt really strange. And then finally, I started understanding why everyone kept saying, oh, we have too much data and not enough insights. And, you know, it was clear that if you're dealing with an issue of data aggregation, trying to take all these different data sets in different formats coming in at different times and making sense of them, that you'd be flooded with data that by the time you make sense of, it's kind of too late. So when we came into this market, we went to brands and said, hey guys, wouldn't you rather just have your own 
collection taggings across every single one of your partners? And they said, yes, but they won't let us. And I kind of said, well, you guess what? You guys have the money. So maybe, maybe you should ask for it. And I, and they said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll push for it. It's going to create some friction, but in exchange, you have to promise that as a data company, you're not going to monetize from any of these distribution channels so that your incentives are not, you know, misaligned with the truth essentially. And we said, fine, let's give it a try. And so that's what we've been doing for the last three years. We've been, I guess, it's the right word, debunking a lot of myths and creating a lot of visibility and transparency across all these different channels that brands are doing content with. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you've, if you raise money between, you raised $20 million just now, which we'll get to in a bit, but between company one and company two, I'm not sure if you raised another round, but if let's pretend you were as, as soon as you were starting or you did as soon as you were starting company two, what was sort of your sort of pitch in terms of what, unique market insight or what had changed about the world that it allowed Notch to rise up in a way that it didn't before or, or why now, so to speak, or what, or what big trend are you in a unique position to capitalize on? Yeah, there were a couple of things that I was talking about at the time. We did raise a, raise a Series A right around the time we moved to New York. So the first one was, because we were focused on the paid, and paid side, the first one was, hey, do you, do you want to know the truth about what's really going on with all of your content investments? And two, do you want to be able to compare and allocate optimized dollars efficiently in real time against all your content investments? Um, and that was more on the marketing side. On the investor side, what I was saying is 10% of every single campaign spend goes to a data company and it's inefficient and those dollars get double spent or triple spent across every single distribution channel. We're proposing that we go to brands and centralize that and essentially Make you know save them money while giving them data in real time that they can then use to optimize their media dollars to begin with. And it was a really clear pitch from a uh, kind of market size and how do we make money standpoint. And then the only other thing I had to kind of the bridge I had to create for the investors was to explain to them how big the market was. And back then and even now, content is the fastest growing category in the realm of advertising. And I mean, all you need to do is Google content marketing and you realize how great of an investment it has received and um, how much more it's probably going to receive over the next few years. You know, I, in prepping for this podcast, I've accidentally called you uh, an ad tech company and then you said, you corrected me and said, no, MarTech company. Talk more about sort of I guess, the difference between ad tech and MarTech or, or why that was important to you and, and what was it like to raise, you know, not only series A, but also series B with some people potentially, you know, mispositioning you as a ad tech company. Yeah. So, Look, I, to be honest, I actually, when I told you that, I actually Googled ad tech. I was like, I, I'm making all these claims, but I really haven't Googled it. And when you Google it, it's interesting. I mean, it is essentially technology that deals with advertising. So I guess in theory, every technology that touches advertising is ad tech, including the Salesforce marketing cloud. But what's interesting is when people in the industry say ad tech, what they mean is a company that is monetizing as a percentage of kind of a pass-through dollar. So, you know, a programmatic exchange or a native content syndication platform or essentially any type of campaign-driven pricing model where you're making a percentage of what's being transferred to your platform. And that those types of companies traditionally haven't seen massive returns. They've still been successful and, and made a lot of money, but they, you know, the returns and, and the multiples on their valuations have been more like you know, three to five X when you look at the exits. When you think about 
what's called marketing technology companies, usually these companies are enterprise software companies that are you know, monetizing based on yearly contracts and they have very solid relationships, whether it's with publishers, agencies, or brands. I mean, mainly publishers and brands because agencies don't really do enterprise contracts. And those companies, you know, on the flip side, have also been very successful and have traded at multiples that are way north of 10. And so Marketo, Moat, there's a ton. I mean, every single acquisition that's existed in the Adobe, Salesforce, Oracle ecosystem, Blue Kite, Crux, et cetera, all those companies have been pretty successful. And so in terms of how I pitch Notch, we've been extremely disciplined about not making campaign dollars and also not doing pilots. And so everything we sign is a 12-month contract at least. And it's enterprise software and we kind of pay a flat fee and kind of go from there, up from there. And as such, we've never really had the issue of the fluctuating, unpredictable revenue that comes with being a more traditional ad tech company. Right. Can you give a bit of a primer at the extent that you can on the marketing tech space? I mean, one, one question is, why is Adobe, et cetera, buying all these marketing tech companies? And two, just maybe you can give a bit of a market map on the different types of marketing tech companies and where notch fits within that map yeah so look i mean if you think really high level terms there's an evolution from traditional display advertising to content and there's also an evolution from the focus on third-party self-reported data to first-party data that's owned by the actual brand and so if you were to think about these two axes intersecting i think that the majority of the acquisitions in the space have been in the realm of either third-party data aggregators that deal with display advertising, or and that would be like Datarama, Salesforce, or you can say that something like Moat, which was acquired by Oracle, they are kind of the standard for display advertising, viewability and verification, and so on. There's Integral Ad Science, which is currently owned by Vista Equity Partners and probably is going to get sold to one of these big marketing clouds. And then there's a bunch of other companies that deal more with the instrumentation of marketing and how content gets out there. And I think those have been traditionally pretty successful and have sold to a bunch of the big marketing clouds. I think there's a new generation of them starting at Moment and they're getting a bunch of really good funding as well. In terms of where we sit, I would say we are a, if you want to think of us like a, like a moat, so kind of a standard for content intelligence. I always talk about us as the independent standard for content intelligence. So if you accept and embrace that content is the future of advertising, you also have to accept and embrace that there has to be a company that's going to measure it and underwrite it so that marketers feel safe to continue investing in it. And that's going to be notch. Or that is notch, really. (laughs) And what do you need to believe to believe that content is the future of advertising? And what is sort of the strongest counter argument against against that idea? (laughs) I don't think I don't think anyone's argued against that idea. I mean, let me ask you this. Do you use an ad blocker? Yeah, I've used an ad blocker before, yeah. Okay, so you and like the majority of the people that are probably under, I don't know, 60, 70, have an ad blocker that's on. The other people who don't, don't like click on banner ads 0.01% of the time. So even though banner ads get reach, they have not been successfully converting results for brands. And so it's not really a debate as to whether or not display advertising works. Everyone knows that it's, you know, very annoying, intrusive, transactional form of communication. I would say the question is, how is content going to be able to scale as a category? 
can you truly create these personalized high value exchanges with an audience at a scale that allows you to kind of continue winning uh, from a marketing standpoint as a company. So I'd say the focus is more on that side rather than the debate around whether display is going to win. Right. What other businesses could be built on top of this trend of you know, content marketing emerging or continuing to rise? Is it like marketplaces for people who can, uh, almost like an upwork for content? Or like, what are other types of businesses that will become big? On top of content? Yeah. I mean, there's already been a bunch that have been, built, I would say there's workflow management software that deals with the creation of content. There's a combination between workflow management or creative workflow management and also sourcing creative for brands. So there's a bunch of companies like Newscred and Percolate, Contently in the space. There's companies that deal with syndication of content. So what that means is they are taking content that a brand has created on their own and operated and placing, essentially buying full page ads. They're essentially like programmatic networks, except they buy fully immersive experiences, which I think have been proven to work a lot better. And so those are kind of the two categories of companies that I would say happen on the paid side. And then on the owned and operated side, it's a lot more like the next gen CRM. So how do you take content and send the right content to the right person at the right time in the right context? And that's more of a instrumentation platform that we would plug our data into to help inform that strategy. And how do you differentiate between different, uh, different sort of platforms, whether it's, you know, social, email, written, podcast, video, how, how does Notch work with different, different formats? Well, that's, that's kind of the challenge of being a, the, the independent standard for content intelligence is that you kind of have to measure a bunch of different looking things against a bunch of different variables. And that is why the strength of what we've built isn't in the fact that we can create some high-level benchmark for success. It is in the fact that we are collecting every single data point that's relevant about a content piece so that we can come up with what success means for every single brand. Because as you can imagine, a brand might do three podcast series and another brand might do a bunch of articles. And so obviously the success for one versus another it does not look the same. So creating a click-through score, some impression level benchmark doesn't work. And then if a brand is doing articles and podcasts and videos and infographics, what we do is we say, we're going to collect data about high-level impressions, engagement, behavior, sentiment, social engagements, etc. Tell us what's most important to you as a brand, what you're optimizing for, and we are going to create a score internally for you that will calibrate your dashboard and the way your optimization runs based on your notion of success. So that's kind of how we deal with it at a high level. In one of the podcasts, you mentioned that if you could do anything, one of the things you might do is, is buy your competitors and potentially compete with Salesforce and Oracle. And I, I, I'm curious if you can unpack that and, and sort of and segue into another question, which is what's sort of the biggest vision of, of Notch possible? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like we're closer to being able to buy our competitors than ever before. And as I get closer to it, I realize that while it might be a great ego boost for me, it might not be the best thing for the company. I think there's always a cost involved in trying to plug a completely different team inside of your team. And so I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case that we're going to kind of go out and try to buy our competitors. In terms of competing with the larger marketing clouds, I think there's so much space for complementarity in the short run that 
we're probably not going to end up running into them for the next two to three years. In terms of the big vision, to be honest, my big vision is not necessarily to be Adobe or Oracle or to beat Adobe or Oracle. My big vision is to essentially kind of go back to the beginning of what we wanted to do and use our product, especially the feedback piece of it, as an empowering mechanism for consumers to have more control over what data gets shared with the brand and what happens with that data. And so what we're doing now is we're essentially building pretty intricate technology to empower the brand to not only measure the impact of content and optimize it, but also through their content, interact with their consumers and allow them a voice, like a true voice in terms of editing their data profile with the brand. When do you go to consumer or what needs to be true for that to happen? Well, I think we need to build the technology first. I, I also think probably more legislation around data privacy needs to happen before brands are truly going to adopt a different technology for data collection and sort of allow consumers to edit the data that they have on them. But I am personally of the mind that that will happen one way or another, similar to how GDPR happened in Europe. I think there's probably going to be more legislation, probably starting out of California, that is going to lead us closer to that. You think we'll have a GDPR-like thing in, in the U.S.? I think in general, in the world, it's going to actually get a lot more granular than that because GDPR, essentially, the way it works now, I'm sure you've seen the websites, basically says, yes, no, like, do you, are you allowing us to use your data or not? I think it's going to be a bit more sophisticated than that going forward, and maybe certain types of data will be used and others will not. And so I, I'm just kind of curious what role we can play on that front because I think content is really going to be the place where you most interact with audiences about that topic. Do you have thoughts where, when you talk about the future of content, are there certain formats, people have been talking about video being enormous, are there certain non-options you have on, on which formats will, will rise up or, or which companies, you know, whether Facebook or Netflix or Amazon, et cetera, will best take advantage of, of those native formats? I mean, I think the formats have always been the same, to be honest. Like Now, video, everyone's talking about video as if it's like this totally new thing. But to be honest, like we've had TV advertising since the TV came out. So I don't see new formats in the digital space. Maybe, you know, with the emergence of AR and VR, that's going to be something. Although I don't think that's happening as quickly as maybe we thought it would. In terms of Amazon and all these other platforms, like, sure, I think more dollars are going to flow towards Amazon, but I also see brands and marketers becoming really aware of the downsides of having your entire marketing strategy be dependent on a different channel that actually owns your audience that's giving you no data. So I think there's going to be a bit more of a healthy balance between investing on Facebook or on Amazon and trying to also invest in your owned and operated and driving people back to your owned and operated as much as you can. And what about audio? One thing I've been trying to figure out is why podcasting is so big in China and yet so niche here. I mean, I also, again, I don't think audio is new. I mean, we've had radio for a long time. This is just a new format of radio. Right. Um, it's digital radio. I think it's going to take off for sure, 100%. I think just from a brand dollar standpoint, I see so many marketers getting extremely excited in like a legit way, not like blockchain way, but like in a legit way about <laughs> the future of podcasting and, and the overall kind of future of what voice means. And I think we can do it. We can do advertising on podcasts in a much more organic, seamless way. And so, yeah, I, mean, I am excited about that. And we are 100% figuring out how do we measure the impact of podcasts as well. Yeah. Do you work with international companies? 
We do, yes. How, how is that different, if at all? It's not different in the fatty prop that we bring. Sometimes we have to change our product so that it asks people for feedback in a different language, which we've done in like 45 languages so far. What is interesting is actually when you look at the global sentiment data for a brand, we've just noticed certain patterns like it tends to skew a lot more positive in Latin America and it tends to skew a lot more negative in India. It's just, you know, interesting things like that. And sometimes they're more particular to a brand and other times they're, I guess, more particular to the culture. Cool. Now, some people talk about in, in the media world specifically, how there will be sort of a transition from advertising based revenues to subscription based revenues. What say you? So that's really just focused on the, the publisher realm. Yep. Um, rather than, again, like there's, that's the paid side. On the owned and operated side, when you think about a brand, I believe that that's where they're going to spend a lot more of their money, which means that they're going to spend less money on the paid side. I do think that the way to save high quality content businesses is to really focus on subscription. But I also am a believer that content partnerships between true creative forces like, you know, Quartz or New York Times or Wall Street Journal with brands that kind of fit the aesthetic and the message and so on of those channels are also going to be instrumental in making them more money. I'm, I'm, in every any space, I'm curious how, sort of how startups and incumbents, you know, compete and, and, and who has the uh, like leverage and value and what sort of led Notch to win in this area or obtain such a, an advantage where an incumbent didn't, I guess, like why wasn't this done before or why didn't someone a lot bigger than you guys just do it for you besides the fact that you're awesome? <laughs> Thanks. I mean, it kind of was to some extent, I think different, there were smaller data companies that were trying to go in and be this kind of standard for content intelligence. The two things that I think we did differently from them, one is they focused on selling to publishers and agencies, and we focused on selling to brands, which is pretty different because the brand is kind of the top of the food chain and everything else kind of flows from there, which also kind of means that we were able to get enterprise SaaS dollars and 12-month contracts, whereas everything below the brand is a lot more campaign-based and so the revenue is less predictable. The second piece to that is we were not only positioning ourselves as this transparent, independent arbiter that works for the brand, but also collecting both sentiment and feedback as well as traditional analytics, and then also making the effort to connect that to ultimate conversion. And so by doing that, we became this more holistic platform. We added a bunch of competitive intelligence capabilities and planning capabilities to our platform. And I think when we did that, it became pretty obvious to a lot of marketers that we were just a much better platform. And every single big agency in the space has done some type of an audit to understand who are the best partners in the space. And across the board, we won, even though we weren't paying them, we weren't really doing business with them. We were the brand focused one, but we won. So, yeah. <laughs> what, what is the future of ad agencies? What role will they play? Uh -huh. I think ad agencies have spent the last few years trying to consolidate and do everything for their customers as much as they could, whether it was creative or media buying or data or, you know, really anything the customer needed. And I actually think the future of ad agencies is specialization. And this is coming from someone who has never been in an ad agency or worked in an ad agency or ran one. So take it with a grain of salt. But 
I think brands need very specific strategic guidance. And I think agencies that recognize that that's the case and get very good at helping with a content strategy or content creative, I think will potentially win. And hopefully also seeing collaboration between a bunch of different specialist agencies would be good as well. But unfortunately, what you see is agencies usually start that way and then they just become a holistic agency quite quickly because customers customers basically say, oh, you're so great at this. Do you, wanna, do you want more money? Do this other thing for me. And it's very hard to say no to more money. So you kind of end up being everything to that customer. But I also think that makes you more commoditized. So yeah, I think that's the future though. I mean, the only other thing I'll say is I actually think there's been a lot of negative bias towards the advertising industry. You know, I personally love that because it means that there isn't a lot of competition for us because it just isn't as sexy to focus on. So if you're a founder with a data science background, you, you've done like AI and blockchain and ML and all the things that everyone raves about nowadays, going into advertising is not going to be your first choice if you're you know just fresh out of Stanford, which I think is actually creating a really great environment for companies in New York to kind of go in and, and make a lot of money and get sold for a lot of money. I think it's kind of an overlooked, massive, massive market. In some ways, it's overserved because it's quite noisy and there's a lot of ad tech companies and like, here's a new ad format that can slide over your phone in this way, or here's a new programmatic exchange. But in other ways, and like the ways I think re it really matters and it could impact the industry, which deals with more core foundational technology and data, I think it's largely overlooked by uh, innovators and entrepreneurs. And so it's, it's been interesting to witness that. Yeah, and, and what do you think is sort of, is the strongest defense of people who overlook it that, hey, the multiples for ad tech companies haven't been good and, and even marketing tech space is just crowded? Or, or is there a stronger defense you would give them? And, and what's your, your best counter as to why they should reconsider? Because we've had some marketing tech companies or ad tech companies that people, yeah, just haven't looked on principle. Haven't looked on principle. Interesting. They just, they just write, VCs just write off on the, the whole category. Yeah, you know, it's an, I didn't, I thought that that would be the case for this raise, but that wasn't at all the case. I think there's an overall trepidation around the buyer and, you know, maybe CMOs are fickle, but really what VCs write off are companies that are not in a predictable revenue loop. So if you are making money on a campaign basis as a percentage of something else that's transacting through a platform, yeah, I mean, VCs are probably not going to want to look at the company. But if you're creating a foundational layer to a massive industry, I would think VCs would want to look at you. And I actually was surprised at how many VCs were interested in talking to us and we're reaching out between New York and San Francisco. Um, it was kind of, kind of interesting and overwhelming. And obviously it helped that we were growing at much higher multiples than most enterprise SaaS companies, which was awesome. But I think even if we had been growing at a relatively good multiple, it would still would have been a pretty great opportunity. I think a lot of that perception has changed because of these big acquisitions that Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce has done in the last few months, years. Cool. To end, this might be a little bit of a hard question, but if, if I wanted to, if you were giving me advice on how to uh, be more elegant in style, presentation, and just uh, general ethos, what, what might you tell me, Anda? Oh, I literally thought you were going to ask me how to be more elegant from a clothing standpoint. And I was like, well, let me tell you, I have a lot of tips. From a presentation standpoint, you know, I think 
there's there's this really nice blend between rehearsal and improv and i'm able to be really kind of natural and great at improv if i've rehearsed what i need to say and what i have to get across really really well and so i spend hours making sure that the things that i i am i want to hit on and i need to hit on are there and then i just kind of let myself go and build around them yeah so uh Anda, i was trolling you uh by asking you that question but i'm glad you, you answered seriously and it's a it's a good answer so i'm gonna leave it oh, <laughs> in, the, in the podcast and i, yeah, I was your asking troll, your trolling was very subtle it was very sad. It, it was from a it was from a clothing perspective because I think a few years ago you. Oh, told from me, a clothing to perspective, I can tell you exactly what you need to do, which is to wear black always. Yes, totally. Because you told me a few years ago that I need to be more. But <laughs> and, and I every day I just tell myself that. Just kidding. Uh, Anda, this, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Where can people learn more about Notch, and what should they stay tuned for for what's to come? Yeah, so we just launched our new website, uh, notch.com, K-N-O-T-C-H.com. So please get in touch with us through there. We have a really great content hub, big believers in content marketing, obviously. So yeah, stay in touch with us. Awesome. Anda, thank you so much. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.